Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the Leesburg Talk podcast. You're about to listen to a midweek teaching that happened on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8 in the Worship Center. You're always welcome to come and join us in person, but you can also listen to this podcast and catch up or go back and listen to uh, uh, if you can stand my, my terrible jokes. Uh, there is a handout that goes with this teaching. You can download that. You should be able to download that in the details of the podcast. Uh, it varies based on the podcast or that you listen to, but there should be a place for the description of the episode. And on that, you should see a link to download uh, the handout. If you can't find that, feel free to reach out to me and I will make sure to, to get that to you. Uh, God bless. Take care. And I hope you enjoy this teaching on the life of Paul. Well, hey, it's good to see you all again this week. Exciting. Exciting stuff uh, as we continue our study in the life of Paul. Uh, before we jump in, I'd like to pray for us and then, and then kind of jump in where we were last week. We'll kind of do a quick summary, but uh, that, that, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, we thank you for your word that shapes us, that guides us, that directs us. And right now, Lord, uh, as we started last week and we continue this week, we look at one of your, uh, your, your men, Paul. Uh, Lord, help us to understand Paul better. Lord, help us to understand Paul better so that we can understand his writings better. We thank you for the privilege that we have in this great country to gather and study your word. And we just ask that as we, as we do that, um, you open our eyes to see new things and continue to transform us uh, into the men and the women you've called us to be. We thank you for Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, somebody help me. We, we kind of went through all kinds of stuff this past week. Uh, somebody help me. Where, we, where did we end off? Driven by zeal is where we left off. Um, and let's see. Let me get it pulled up here. I have so much fun <laughs> uh, doing this stuff that I add to and add to and add to and add to. Driven by zeal. And let's see if this guy works. Yeah. Do you all have last week's with you? Here. So driven by zeal. We're talking about what makes Paul, Paul. Uh, and this driven by zeal topic is kind of neat because it... it I mean, it, it helps us see, we, we, of course we know as we read Paul's letters, we see that he was zealous. He was very excited about the message that he had. Um, but often we see that from a Christian point of view. He's driven by zeal in that he wants to share the message. And that's right, and yes. Um, but we fail to see that what drove him to persecuting the church was that same zeal. That same excitement. What, what drove him? Well, he was zealous. He, he says in Galatians chapter 1, um, verse 13, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Listen, a passive person doesn't do that. <laughs> you know? 
That, that, that's active, active agency there. Um, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, asked to zeal a persecutor of the church. Look at how he ties zealousness and his action of persecuting the church. It's, a descriptive, of his, it's descriptive of his zealousness. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So think about this. As Paul identifies himself in his former life, how did Paul see his actions toward the Christ followers? Well, he saw what he was doing as, as blameless under the law. It was out of his zealousness for God that he was uh, endorsing the stoning of Stephen, for example. I, I, I mean, we... we, we I mean, we think of a guy like Paul today, and we would say, well, he's nuts. But what Paul's doing is he's working on a history uh, of zealous men in the Jewish faith uh, that he, or probably his mentors, probably people he looked to in history that, that, that paved the way for his zealousness because he saw zealousness as a good thing. Why? Well, it's largely because the Old Testament describes it in that way. Consider for just a second, uh, this activity, this, else, uh, this persecuting the church was a, was a manifestation of the, transi- the, the, the traditions of his ancestors. Instead of uh, Paul uh, leading a revolt against Rome, he seems to have taken this nationalistic role and wanting to, uh, hmm, what's the word there? Preserve the integrity of of Israel. He wants to make sure that all this foreign contaminates with these crazy people saying the Messiah, God's Messiah is a cursed criminal hung on a tree. That's blasphemous. And so his zealousness comes from what he sees as as noble, good, God-honoring, actions. Uh, we see a couple of examples of this. In the Bible, we've got a couple of examples of zealots um, who probably uh, uh, influenced Paul a great deal. Excuse me, the biblical grandson of Aaron, Phineas, uh, and the prophet Elijah are both zealots. In, in more recent history, in Paul's day, was a guy by the name of Matthias, all three of these men were full of violent zeal for Yahweh and for his law and for the nation of Israel and inspired many first century Jews. And so as we think about Paul's life, we're not just thinking about Paul, but we're also thinking about first century Judaism. In, in our circles today, when we study the scriptures, we, we ask questions about, well, what did the Jews believe about this or that? And Paul deals with that largely in his letters. But... Consider that your answers when talking about Jews in the first century are going to vary as much as if someone from 3024 were to come back in time and say, uh, James Smith, what did Christians believe in 2022? Well, that's, I mean, there's a wide variety of different Christian beliefs, right? That's why we have, you know, uh, churches within four miles of each other all over the place because, because there are different sects and different tracks. And so you've got Baptists here and Methodists here and uh, Christian uh, uh, Restoration Movement churches here. Uh, are they Christians? Yeah. Are they the same? Not quite, but kind of, right? 
in, in first century Judaism, it was the same thing. There are many sects of Jews. We talked last week about uh, the sect of which Paul was a member of, which was the Pharisees. Do, does anyone remember what set the Pharisees apart? Yeah, they, they, well, they believed in the resurrection. resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. They had zeal generally for the Old Testament uh, uh, law. They had, a, they had an excitement. They were very literalist when it came to interpreting the law. Uh, what set them apart from the Sadducees? Do y'all remember why the Sadducees were the Sadducees? That's right. See? You remember it. It's dorky. But they were sad, you see. Uh, because they didn't believe in, uh, in the resurrection. Uh, they didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in um, uh, 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 spirits, or angels, or anything. So, so we've got a couple Old Testament examples. We've got Elijah. We've got uh, the grandson of, of Aaron Phineas, both zealous guys. Uh, we've got the guy, in, uh, I think it was around uh, the 2nd century B.C., uh, Matthias. Uh, <clears throat> look back at Phineas in Numbers chapter 25. Phineas is a zealot. Uh, he killed uh, uh, this this guy in order to stop what uh, what what numbers calls the plague of idolatry. He, so he kills a, a, another um, a, a person in order to stop idolatry and immorality uh, among the people of Israel. And then in Psalm 106, that act of sacred violence uh, was not only separated, but reckoned to him as righteousness. The words that, that the psalmist uses in 106, talking about Phineas and, and, the, and, and his murder uh, in Numbers, uh, it ties him, it, it's, it's reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever, it says. The language there is tied very closely to the language of, of Abraham, uh, who, whose faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. According to the book of Numbers itself, God rewarded this violent zeal because it brought salvation to Israel. Numbers 25, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. Well, how was that? Uh, in that I was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Uh, what Phineas does is he acts in a jealous, in a zealous way. Uh, he, he kills someone in order to preserve the integrity of Israel. And God sees that and he, and he rewards that by, by, by withholding his, his, uh, uh, his wrath. Therefore, uh, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenants of the perpetual priesthood, because he was was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Uh, Phineas's zealousness brought atonement for the people of Israel. Uh, another example of this zealousness in the, um, in the Old Testament was Elijah, the prophet. In one of the more dramatic stories of the Bible, you'll recall uh, his, his zeal for God in 1 Kings chapter 19. And he challenges the prophets of Baal. Uh, that, well, that's, you know, that's settled the score once and for all. You take your, your sacrifice to God. I'll take my sacrifice to Elijah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll take my, my sacrifice to, to Yahweh. Uh, you, you use your prophets and you uh, have fire come down and consume the, consume the sacrifice. Uh, and then I'll, I'll do mine and we'll see who, who is answered. 
And you remember the story, the prophets of Baal uh, came down, they, they ran around and they cried, and Elijah makes fun of them and says, well, maybe your God's on the toilet, uh, scream a little louder, you know. Maybe he's not paying attention, maybe he's asleep, why don't you raise your voices a little more. And then finally, Elijah takes uh, his sacrifice and builds an altar and pours water all over it. Uh, and then calls down fire from heaven, and it's all consumed, not only the sacrifice, but the altar and the water and the trough, or the trenches around it. Uh, after that, uh, Elijah uh, oversees the, the murder and the execution of the, prophet, the false prophets of Baal. This is a zealous act, a zealous activity. Uh, both of these guys, Phineas and Elijah, would have been heroes um, to a first century Jew like Paul who's zealous for the integrity of Israel. A hundred years um, or so later, I'm not sure if that's, I've got that written here. That might not be right. Uh, following the spirit of Elijah and the footsteps of, uh, of Phineas was a guy named uh, Mattathias. He burned with zeal for the law, and he killed an unnamed Jew um, because that Jew had offered a pagan sacrifice at the command of our. Ar- Antiochus the fourth. Uh, this is um, recorded in uh, an intertestamental book in a Jewish history book called First Maccabees. You've probably heard of the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, this happened around 200 years before Christ. I think it's about 200 years before Christ. It's recorded there. It's uh, zealots, uh, nationalists, uh, um, uh, Jewish nationalists revolted against the, 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 the uh, Antiochus, 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 I think it's Antioch, Antioch. Well, I don't know what it is now, Antioch, Antiochus, anybody know, Antiochus, just say I'm right, even if I'm wrong, okay, perfect, um, uh, revolted against, against them, uh, the Maccabean revolt, uh, his sons, including uh, one of them, was Judas Maccabus, who was one of the um, one of the uh, more prominent names there. And so these guys, like Phineas, like Matthias, like Judas Maccabus in the Maccabean Revolt, um, and Paul had this common zeal for God, for Israel, and for the law that expressed itself, that exposed itself, uh, and often dealing harshly with with sinning Jews. With, with, with Jews who were stepping out of line. Now, although Paul was not engaged in literal killing, possibly, uh, we know that he at least approved of the stoning of Stephen. Uh, he, was looked, uh, he looked on that with favor. Uh, later in Romans 10, he talks about how uh, 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 he might have tipped his hat to other uh, 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 murders. So, so the question then is, is why? Why did Paul perceive uh, that this uh, band of fellow Jews in his day, why did he see them as a threat to Israel? The, the Christians, remember, we often forget this, but the Christians were first Jewish. The first Christ followers were Jewish people. So why did Paul see uh, these first Christians these Jews, as threats to Israel? Why did his zeal for God lead to persecution? What was wrong with the Christ believers that Paul uh, was to conclude that they were polluting Israel and therefore dangerous to the whole community? 
Uh, several reasons have been suggested, um, all of which have a, a, a big degree of possibility. Uh, is this in your notes? Yes. Uh, so, so these Christ believers, why would Paul persecute them so much? Why would his zealousness for the Lord and for the law and for Israel um, uh, uh, push him to, 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 to go after these Christians? Well, these Christ believers, they had a relaxed attitude toward the law, and they had a critical uh, stance toward the temple. Well, well, think of what they were teaching about the law and about temple. The law was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the temple worship, the temporary atonement that would be achieved through the temple, uh, it has been permanently achieved through Christ. That's the message that these Jewish Christians are spreading. And so, of course, that, that led to Paul's zealousness, or zealousness being acted out, acted out in, in hostility. Uh, uh, th these Christ believers fully accepted Gentiles into their Jewish community, uh, to their table without circumcision, thus polluting Israel. Uh, they contradicted the law by their outrageous and near blasphemous confession of a defeated, cursed criminal as raised from the dead to be Israel's Messiah. For, for a zealot like Paul, that would be fighting words and is fighting words. These Christ believers foolishly put Israel at risk of political blowback from the Roman authorities by proclaiming the advent of the royal Messiah. I mean, this is big. By the first century, uh, uh, first century when the Christ event happens, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high priest in, the, uh, in Jerusalem, it's much more of a political figure than he is, well, I mean, he goes back and forth, depending on who's in the role, but often it was much more of a political figure than it was a religious position, a political position more than a religious position by the first century. Uh, and so these Christians, these Jewish Christians, uh, declaring a royal risen king would have put them in a, in a political uh, jeopardy. And finally, um, they blasphemy and practice idolatry by identifying a human being with God, referring to Jesus as, as Lord. This would stir up Paul's um, uh, uh, zealousness. Although one or another of these reasons may have been the most the important, it's likely that their cumulative effect drove Paul over the edge. Excuse me. He opposed everything the Christ believers stood for, their convictions, their conduct, uh, their composition, composition of the community. Uh, his comprehensive zeal, that, uh, he had a comprehensive zeal that could not be attained or contained. And so that's why he goes persecuting the church. Now, Paul has a, an experience, as we talked about a little bit last week, and this is, this is a fun thing to kind of land in for a while. What happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? I think we have five different times where Paul retells this story. Each time, if you look at the accounts, each time he tells it a slight, slightly different. Enough to say, well, he tells it five times differently. I mean, I, I guess that would be the, the, the fairest way to say it. 
Uh, what happened and how did Paul see this interaction? What did he see in his being? See, we often talk about, in your Bibles, very well might say uh, Paul's conversion, which is the classic interpretive method of, uh, of, of Acts 9. Paul's conversion. We teach and we have heard taught and we have read and much, much ink has been spilt uh, on Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. The picture we put in our minds is a Jew is walking down the road, Jesus appears, and out walks a Christian. Uh, that very well could be the case. But it might be something different. It might be something different from Paul's perspective. The question I hope to ask tonight in part of this uh, time together is did Paul see that as a conversion or a completion of his Jewishness? And I think the answer can be from our perspective both. But, but I think it's a lot of fun to play with the and chew on the idea of Paul not being converted, but instead called and commissioned. Because we know that he saw himself as called and commissioned, like the prophets of old, as we'll talk about. Um, with people like Phineas as his model, Paul sought his justification in a form of sacred violence and community destruction. Um, but we see something changes. The churches were still very young when Paul begins to persecute the church. Although we can't know the year with certainty, it was within a few years of Jesus' execution and resurrection, sometime between 32 and 36 A.D. And then it happened. Paul turned around. But what was it? Well, first we see that it was, a, that it was an appearance. Uh, first Paul says that Jesus appeared to him as he had appeared to the other apostles and believers. Um, Paul had seen Jesus, the Lord, and it was, divinely, uh, it was a divinely granted revelation or apocalypse. Uh, the word here uh, but w uh, in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, but when he who set me, I'm sorry, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. The, the word there, reveal, is apocalypsis. Uh, it's the idea of, uh, of well, ta-da, right? Uh, this is a spectacular event uh, that happens in Paul's mind. In order, he revealed his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult anyone. He'll, he'll go on talk, defending his apostleship there. But Jesus' revelation to Paul means at least a few things. It, it means at least that Jesus was no longer dead, but alive. Now, of course, we know looking back, that, you know, well, of course, but look from Paul's perspective. Now, Paul wouldn't have necessarily understood all of these things at once, but as Jesus appears to him on the road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, he's confronted with a, with a real issue there. 
the, the, the revelation of Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus means that God had raised Jesus and, and thereby uh, both vindicated him and exalted him. He's not the cursed criminal that you once thought he was. The crucified Jesus was indeed exalted as God's Messiah, the anointed one, the Jewish anointed one, the one promised of in Israel, and therefore the royal Son of God and Lord. Jesus' appearing to Paul meant that Jesus' death was not merely a, a curse on him, but a death for other sins. It's the re resurrection of the dead, and the last days have begun. When Paul sees this event, and he, as he comes to understand the appearance of Jesus, what that means? It means for him, and we'll see later on, um, uh, that he sees the last days have now begun because Jesus has risen from the grave. God's exalted has, has collided into the space-time space uh, of the day. Uh, the, the last days have, have started. Jesus could be encountered as a living person in a, in a presence. The encounter with Jesus was uh, an experience of undeserved mercy. Paul definitely saw that uh, uh, as an implication of Jesus' revelation, as, as he'll tell us later on in I believe in 1st or 2nd Timothy, he talks about how, how God's undeserved mercy was poured out upon him so that he could be a testimony, uh, an example to, to, uh, to those. If someone as wicked as, as Paul, in his foolish zealousness, persecuting the church could be redeemed, set free, commissioned with a new path, then, then all of us have an opportunity. None of us are without, outside of the, the, the grasp of God. The violent zeal for the law was misguided, and persecuting the church was a grave error. Uh, the significance of law and the temple and circumcision needed to be reevaluated in light of God's vindication of Jesus. If Jesus is the royal Messiah, the risen king, then, then all the law, the temple, the circumcision, all of that needs to be reevaluated. And Paul spent much of his days writing dealing with that specific issue. And the Gentiles who were to come to God in the last days must somehow be part of God's unfolding plan in the death and the exaltation of Jesus. I, I, I love Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles, but think of how touchy of a subject that is. Go back and read Acts chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and Peter's interaction with Gentiles and see how touchy that is. I mean, this has got to be... Um, very uncomfortable. I, I mean, think not only, not only in your life, but for as long as you know, there have been strict community guidelines. Our people don't mesh with these people. And now that's all changing because Christ has defeated the grave. Now, while in our head that must, yes, right? But in practice... Without a doubt, there was struggle with trying to readjust as the people of God. Not just these people and those people, but the people. There, there's got to be, um, what's the word, uh, tension as that d develops. There's tension, and, and we see that played out in Peter and his acts, and, and even in Paul and his, and his actions. Uh, Jesus, the exalted Lord, is the same as Jesus, the crucified Messiah. 
and it would become central, the central affirmation of Paul's theology and his spirituality. 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 1 through 10, uh, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on uh, to visions and re revelations of the Lord. I know a man, I think Paul says this very tongue-in-cheek, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or... God knows. I think I just read that. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except out of weakness. Though if I should wish to boast... I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Think about the change that happens in Paul as a result of, of the Damascus Road encounter. There's a change that happens. It changes his whole temperament in, in many ways. The question we ask then is, is it, is it a call, a commission, a conversion? What's the best word to describe it? Uh, Paul says that God graciously called and appointed him in the same way, the same language that is used of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Though neither prophet is mentioned by name, Paul's claim that God has set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, here in Galatians 1, echoes the declarations of both of those prophets. And now, uh, well, uh, Isaiah 49, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Uh, this is the same terminology that Paul uses to describe himself. In Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, And now the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Now this word here, nations, in, in the uh, Septuagint is Ethan. Uh, that's the same word that would have been used here in Isaiah 49. Uh, I will make you a, make you a light for the nations, the Ethan, meaning also Gentiles, that my salvation might reach the end of the earth. This is the same terminology and wording that Paul uses for himself. He sees himself in the, in the, in the lineage of, of guys like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, appointed before his birth to be a prophet to the nations, Gentiles also. Um... Yeah. 
So Paul says, when he had set me apart before I was born, he who called me by his grace. He's been set apart, and he's also been called. Like the call of the prophets, Paul, Paul's called carried with it a commission. Paul's specific commission was to proclaim Jesus, God's Son, among the Gentiles. He was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, preach him among the Gentiles. Uh, I, I didn't consult anyone. Um, the word appearance here, the, the Christ appeared to me and call together suggest. So he appeared and he called or commissioned um, together suggest something, um, a, a, a divine summons that Paul receives from God. This is special. This is set apart. Although Acts and the letters disagree on the details, they agree on these two aspects of Paul's experience. He's called and he's commissioned with a specific job, with a specific purpose. And it's important for us to understand that Paul sees that calling and that commissioning through the eyes of a first century Jew, through the eyes of an Old Testament Jew. It's not just a new call, but it's the fulfillment of the of a call as Jeremiah or as Isaiah. It's a similar call. Thus, some could argue the fulfillment of the Jewish awaited Messiah. Does that make sense? But why the Gentiles then? Why Gentiles? It is difficult to resist the conclusion that the focus of Paul's commission was directly related to the focus of his persecution. The full Gentile participation in the community of Christ-believing Jews. Because he had persecuted them so violently, it seems that his commissioning was tied to that persecution because Paul thinks it himself. Paul knew that the one prophetic hope was that the Gentiles would come to Israel's God in the last days. And this hope uh, is now powerfully expressed Incited to be a part of the context to which Paul is now preaching this. Galatians 1, 15 and 17. I might preach him among the Gentiles. Uh, I don't have the next one on there, but verse 17 alludes to that as well. Paul interpreted his vocation to be not merely allowing the Gentiles in, uh, but urging the Gentiles to turn to the one true God by acknowledging the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Those who formerly were, were excluded are now being included. That's the, the message that we see here in the New Testament. Although Paul's awareness and understanding of his commission may have developed over time, it seems to have been seen in retrospect as an essential dimension of his in, initial counter of the risen Jesus. So it's difficult to resist the conclusion that Paul's later suffering in life for Christ which is such a big part of his apostolic identity and mission, they grow directly out of the experience of being divinely called while being a persecutor. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 alludes to that. I don't think I have that on the slide, uh, but consider that passage for just a second. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Let's see if it'll work. It didn't. Scribble that down there. Look at that. His suffering for 
Christ in his ministry is directly tied to his persecution. Now, this is certainly part of what the powerful story of Acts 9 seeks to convey. When Paul encounters Jesus, Jesus, the risen Jesus, he asks the question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the experience was so impressed on Paul, God's faithfulness and his grace, which would both become central in his mission and his message. The word grace, grace here must be stressed. There's absolutely no evidence before Paul's call that he felt any guilt for his persecuting zeal. He had no self-doubt about his mission. The letters testify that Paul was surprised by grace, shocked by, by the appearance that he had received. I, I think that's such an interesting thing to consider. N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, a Pauline scholar, he writes a book, Surprised by, I think it's, oh boy, I think it's N.T. Wright, wrote, wrote a book called Surprised by Grace. And from, uh, in his writing, he, he, he deals heavily with this first century Palestine Jew uh, who is so caught off guard by grace, not only that he received while actively working against, uh, but a grace that he cannot hold on to, which is really a great model for us, isn't it? Uh, think, think about how that plays out. When we really understand the gravity of our sinfulness today, when we understand how, how, how horrendous our sin is, what the great cost of our sinfulness is, we understand a new perspective of grace that's been given to us. And when we understand how terribly undeserving I, John Welch, am, and yet God chose to hand over and pour out his grace upon me, then it, by default, when I have a proper understanding, makes it much easier for me to extend grace to others. What I receive when I understand it properly, I can't help but to extend it to others. One of the more uh, aggravating things that, that I think is common in our world today is the lack of, of grace and love specifically from Christ-declaring Christ people. If I'm not forgiving and gracious with you, I need to start asking myself, am I truly understanding the gospel of grace? Paul couldn't hold on. In summary, his experience of the appearance of Jesus uh, has given him a divine call and commission that meant at least the following to Paul. Is this in your notes? He, he was a recipient of, of grace, unmerited grace. Is that in there at all? No. Uh, he was divinely appointed mission to proclaim Jesus as God's son to the Gentiles. And number three, he would more than likely suffer in the execution of his commission, even as he had previously inflicted the suffering. So, so we, we talk about his call and his commissioning. Well, let's talk about conversion. I think there are some elements of the word conversion that do sit right with Paul, but not fully the way we normally think of it. I, I don't see... Listen, if I am a... Uh, I, I'm an atheist who is... Act, or yeah, I'm an atheist or a, hmm, a Buddhist, right? 
or some other faith system and I come to Christ, I'm clearly converted, right? I don't see Paul converted in that light. Because yes, I mean, he professes Christ, but remember that that Christ, again, is a Jewish Christ. And so I think from Paul's point of view, he would have seen his faith not shifting from Judaism to Christianity, but the fulfillment of Judaism, if that makes sense. Paul's Damascus Road experience is often referred to as conversion. Um, but that kind of shifted throughout. We've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be converted? A conversion may be defined uh, as a, a change in one's convictions or beliefs or conduct or behavior. And, and in that regard, absolutely, Paul experienced a, a conversion. Now, his convictions, uh, his belief, it's much of that, here's the thing, his zealousness never changed. The topic of his zeal changed. He was still just as zealous for Yahweh before the Damascus Road uh, uh, event. It just changed as he understood a full version of, or vision of what Christ had done, or what God had done through Christ. Also, here's probably the bigger thing, his, his community affiliation or belonging, that drastically shifted uh, as a result of the Damascus Road uh, event. And so, and so in, in these ways, uh, a conversion absolutely happened. Uh, by that definition, Paul uh, certainly experienced a conversion, a, a radical change in, in many ways. But understand, on the way to destroy the church, Paul became convinced that Jesus was alive because he appeared to him. And that he was indeed the Messiah and the Lord, his conviction shifted. And consequently, he stopped persecuting the church, the, the Christ believers, and began uh, preparing to proclaim the one he had once opposed. He would no longer imitate people like Phineas and Matthias, seeking his own justification through violent zeal for the law, which is his conduct, he left that, he left the Pharisees to join the growing community of Jew and Gentiles committed to Jesus. In so doing, however, he remained a Jew. He shifted parties, so to speak, changing from zealot for Torah to zealot for Messiah, the exalted, crucified Messiah Jesus. Uh, now, um, any questions, comments, thoughts on any of that stuff? Yes. The three things you said, Paul was a recipient of unmerited grace, and what were the other things? Unmerited grace. Uh, he was divinely appointed on a mission to proclaim Jesus. And the thought behind that is um, a, a unique call on his life, Right? And more than likely, um, he would suffer in the execution of that commissioning, just as he had previously inflicted suffering. That's number three. Any other thoughts, questions? I have so much fun writing this stuff that sometimes I forget that I've got to talk through it. So... Feel free to stop me and ask questions as I go. Yes, ma'am. And one of the fill in the blanks under appearance 
Vivian? Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Now, we're going to go to a really fun issue here. Pot. Should it be legal? Just kidding. It's <laughs> a bad joke. Uh, uh, what you're seeing there uh, is a, is a uh, well, jar uh, that comes from, that was discovered in 1947 through 1947 until 1956. And inside jars just like that are, are scrolls uh, that were found in the caves of Qumran. Uh, the scrolls, let's see, uh, the scrolls were discovered in 11 caves. The story goes, I believe, that there was a shepherd boy out there tending to his animals, throwing rocks, and he throws a rock, and uh, he hears a hollow sound, a thud, and a, a pot breaking. And upon investigation, they found uh, about 11 caves there with these jars inside. And inside the jars are pieces of paper like that. Uh, that's a segment of the great Isaiah scroll that was found. Uh, one of the more important biblical discoveries that, that ha have happened. I mean, it's, it's a huge discovery because it, it gives us early authentication for many of the uh, Old Testament uh, writings. It also gives us not only Old Testament uh, scriptures, but also all kinds of writings from around the first century, which is kind of fascinating to read. Um, the Essenes lived in that area. Uh, the Essenes were a Jewish sect, um, and in those, uh, uh, those pots, we've got uh, uh, different documents that are written, uh, rules of communal living. Uh, we've got uh, different histories, uh, different Jewish literature that's, that's found there along with uh, Bible, um, uh, what we would call Old Testament uh, 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 copies, uh, fragments. Have we ever talked about uh, the, the Bible that we have today? It's copies of copies of copies. Did we talk about that in one of the other, other, earlier ones? I mean, it's such a fortune, and I believe a strong um, uh, 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 provision of the Lord that the original the original uh, writings of the Bible are no longer in existence. I think that's just by the by the the, the providential care of the Lord. Because if John Welch had the original manuscripts and you all just have to trust John Welch, we might all be in trouble. <laughs> Alright? Uh, I, I think uh, th those documents could fall into evil hands and bad things would happen. Uh, but what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies that are transmitted and copied and copied and copied. And then if we were to take all of the uh, biblical manuscripts that we have today and stack them in a pile, I think it's estimated that the, that pile would be uh, a mile long, right? Uh, compared to, you know, things like, uh, uh, what's the, uh, hmm, oh, I'm blanking. What's one of the old... Uh, Gilead, yeah. It would be like five feet tall, stuff like that, you know, from antiquity. Those writings are very small numbers of, uh, of, uh, of, of manuscripts, of copies, uh, compared to 
thousands of copies that we have today of the Bible. Anyway, these were found. This is a copy of Isaiah in the Dead, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we've dubbed as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these scrolls contain the oldest known copies of most Old Testament books and other Jewish works. Um, we've got theology of the Essene communities and commentaries of scriptures that were found there. Uh, these other sources, the, the Essene community guidelines and commentaries of scripture, uh, they demonstrate how much of Paul's theology, his language, his use of scripture resembles that of other Jews from that era. Uh, Paul is not just a... Again, what does a Jew believe in the first century is a, is a loaded question because there were many sects of Jews in Judaism. But this helps us understand a lot of differences that, that happened there. One of the more uh, fascinating things that I want to encourage you with tonight and maybe introduce, introduce to you is the, the, the um, newfound interest in the past uh, 40, 50 years in studying the life of Paul. As we talked about last week, you know, our churches are much more Pauline in, in nature than they are Christian. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Of course, we worship Jesus. We don't worship Paul. Uh, but Paul deals with how do you do church. He deals with, with, with church order and, and rules for engagement of sorts. You know, like he, he deals with a lot more... Well, I don't know the right words for it. He deals with how church developed. Churches developed in, in the form, the mold, the leadership and direction of Paul. And so Pauline studies... Have, have erupted uh, in the 70s. One of the more important works uh, was by, by a guy named uh, Sanders who published um, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Uh, this book uh, really reworked modern scholarship when it deals with Pauline studies. It's really a, a fascinating work in this uh, it changed the way most scholars interpret Paul and specifically Second Temple Judaism. Until Sanders' work, the prominent, dominant interpretation of Second Temple uh, uh, beliefs is that Jews, uh, most people taught the classic view of Paul and, and, and Second, Second Temple Judaism, is that Jews believed that they had to earn salvation by keeping Torah. You've probably heard that before. That's the classic teaching on, on Second Temple Judaism. That they were uh, works of, uh, that they earned their, their salvation by doing Torah. The result of that type of thinking is that many scholars, pastors, and, and they persons have concluded that Paul's gospel of grace was directly uh, targeted against the Jewish legalism. We've, we've heard this before, right? We've talked about, you know, this is kind of the dominant thinking. Uh, Sanders, who, is an, uh, who wrote this book here, he argues that that reconstruction uh, is unsupported by ancient sources. And I want to introduce you to some of those tonight. Because I think this is such fascinating because it shifts the way we think of Paul. Uh, Sanders argued in this, in this work uh, that that Jews in Paul's day understood grace a lot more than we give them credit for. 
they understood, he argues that they, the, the, he argues that they understood grace. They understood that they got in um, to God's covenant by his grace. The emphasis on Torah uh, observance in Jewish texts ensures that, that they stayed in God's covenant. So we got in by grace, and now we're going to live out Torah in order to stay in. That's, that's uh, uh, Sanders' big pitch in this book. The works are, of Torah are not how Jews earned salvation, he says, but instead it was their response to God's gracious saving activity. Now think about that as we read through Paul's writings in the New Testament. That changes all kinds of things if we see Paul targeting his language differently there. Uh, Sanders called this relationship between grace and Torah, he called it covenantal nom- nominism. nomism. Uh, I think this is in your, in your uh, packet there, I, I hope. If not, it's here. Uh, briefly put, uh, this idea is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the, of the covenant, and that the covenant requires, as the proper response of man, his obedience to its commandments while providing the means of atonement for transgression. Now, if you think about that for just a minute, that sounds a lot like Christianity, doesn't it? How are we saved? By God's un, uh, 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 pouring out of grace. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. But New Testament writers... Uh, like Paul and James and elsewhere, while they seem to contradict each other at times, um, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, Paul says. By no means. How can we continue to sin if we've died to it? Uh, 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 James will write, uh, don't be like the person who looks in the mirror and then turns around and forgets what it looks like. Faith without works is dead. See, we get in by God's grace, and then we stay in uh, 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 by, by works. Uh, later, in 1981, so th- this is written in the 70s by Sanders, 77. In 1981, Dunn, James, James Dunn, who is a New Testament scholar, who's, uh, both of these guys are, are top, top-notch guys, he dubbed this, um, this thinking... Um, the new perspective on, on Paul is what it's called. Uh, when you read it today, sometimes it's called NPP, uh, or New Perspective of Paul. Um, Dunn, Sanders, N.T. Wright are some of the more popular names that adhere to this uh, 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 teaching today. The Jew, they argue the new perspective of Paul, and really it's the new, protect, new perspective on, on Second <laughs> Temple Judaism. They argue, uh, or they propose that these Jews knew that they got into God's covenant by His grace. And if the Jews of Paul's day understood that, if the Jews in the Old Testament understood that, then think about what changes in the examples that we know of Jewish literature. All of this is the Exodus. Think about the Exodus event. God had made a promise years earlier 
that promise didn't seem to be fulfilled. The Israelites find themselves in slavery in Egypt for fun, for, for fun, hmm, for fo- 400 years. Golly, I think I just struck out. For 400 years, they're in slavery and bondage. God calls Moses, says, go set my people free, lead them out of, free, out of, out of slavery into uh, uh, freedom. Uh, as a result of all that, the people come out of slavery, out of bondage in, e- uh, in Egypt. God goes onto the mountain and starts to receive the law. And how does the law begin as he describes it to Moses? As God depicts it to Moses. He says what? I am the Lord your God. Who did what? Who brought you out of slavery in, in Egypt. He didn't stutter like that though. I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. What did you do to earn it? Nothing. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the Lord God who led you to this place. Because of that, because of that, now here's the Torah, here's the law. Put no other gods before me. Sabbath, rest, all that stuff. Now, um, does that make sense? Do you see how that could be? That's different than the classic interpretation of Paul. So often we read the New Testament writings of Paul specifically, and we talk about when we think when we see Paul fighting with a Jewish thought, we explain it to ourselves. Well, Paul is fighting against works-based salvation. But what if that's not the case? What if Paul's not arguing against this work? What if the Jews understood that, that grace happens, that grace is a work of God. Torah-keeping, then, in first-century Judaism, is a response to God's grace. I think that's a really neat way to, look at, to, to see New Testament writing. I think there's a lot of validity to this interpretive method. Uh, I'm sorry? There, yeah. With a different interpretation, and that's what they're basing that on, right? Is just another way of reading. Yes, yes. It's well. Our issue is, what did the broad strokes of Judaism in the first century? What what was their relationship with Torah, and what was their relationship with grace? See, here's, here's another thing. In the Greek language, for example, when we, when we read Paul's writings, in the Greek language, there isn't a, a word or vocabulary for um, like legalism, for that type of an idea. That word doesn't even exist in the, in the Greek vocabulary, that, that uh, root, that uh, family of words. See, the English language has that. We often will put that in there. So the question we have to ask is, what did the first century Jews, what was their relationship with Torah and with the idea the, the idea of grace? We often, in the classic view of Pauline Lit, we often look at the first century Jews 
who were fighting against grace that would be extended to the Gentiles. I would argue, and Sanders and Wright and, and, and uh, Dunn would argue that uh, the first century Jews understood grace a lot more than we understand, than, than we think, because they understood the scheme of the Exodus. It was God's grace that first stepped in, that intervened, that pulled them out of slavery, and then as a response to his grace, you're expected to follow along. Now, in the Caves and Qumran, to answer your question more directly, uh, and then tell me if I clear it up here. Uh, in the Caves of Qumran, there is a document um, referenced here, um, and this is written, and it's an Essene community, a sect of Judaism, and look at what the writer writes here. As for me, this is part of their community guidelines, right? As for me, if I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my salvation always. And if I fall in the sin of the flesh, in the justice of God, which endures eternally, shall my judgments be. He will draw me near in his mercies. He will always atone for my sins in his justice he will cleanse me from the uncleanness of the human being and from the sin of the sons of man. This document and many other like it give us the perspective that the first century Jews saw grace as something much more similar to what we see it in, in Christ. Does that answer that? That, that's right. Exodus, yeah. I know there's a lot of sects of Judaism, just like there kind of is a Christianity too, but, you know, would it be inordinately dissimilar to Judaism today? Because the Torah is the cornerstone of that. I'll ask my Jewish friends and report back. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. Um, uh, yeah, I, w I would suspect that. I mean, when they say, yeah, we think we're saved and, and our, our acts are out of, you know, obedience and gratitude and yeah. whatever. Or would they say, we do these things and then we're Yeah. Saved. Yeah. And I, and I would suggest probably that your answer would vary based on that tradition of Judaism, right? Um, uh, I'm sorry. But Paul was a Jew's Jew. Yeah, he was, a, he was of the Pharisees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know because he was a Pharisee that he was a very strict literalist, right? Um, but but I, I guess my point with this new perspective is that, especially the Qumran caves and the findings there, that shed new lights in writings like this where we see, okay, it's not as foreign to... Grace is not a foreign, it might not be as foreign of a concept for the first century Jew as we, we like to think. Now, with that, this new perspective of Paul and the classic interpretation of Paul, which one do we choose? Well, here's the beautiful thing, we don't have to choose either. These perspectives help us to navigate and think through and chew on this is why the Word of God is living and active, because, listen, we don't know exactly what Paul meant when he wrote this, this, or this, or this. Um, but as we kind of chew on these theories, it can open our, our eyes to see things maybe in a new light. 
So we don't have to choose one way or another. Now, there are some that, that don't like the new perspective of Paul theology. Well, I think it would be safe to say that's the leading um, perspective of first century Judaism and scholarly stuff today. Um, some people don't like it. Uh, Carson, for example, uh, D.A. Carson is not a big fan of the, of the NPP. Um, and there are reasons for it. I'm maybe going a little too geeky here, but needless to say, here, here, I guess here's the point. The point is, um, if we saw Paul, uh, Paul reacting, not, uh, he's not working, it, 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 it could be that he's not fighting against the Jewish notion of salvation based on works, which is how we normally interpret it. Maybe there's more to it. And that's the point I'd like to, uh, to, to point out. Advocates for the new perspective have stressed that Paul's doctrine of justification was not forged in an argument over, over works righteousness, but instead in the context of the inclusion of the Gentiles into, into God's eschatological people, the church. Think about, I mean, this is largely the message that our world needs today. <laughs> All right? Um, uh, yes, I mean, works righteousness is a message to preach against. Uh, but I think Paul's purpose was much more about inclusion of Gentiles. Um, uh, uh, who is this? Hold on. Hmm. I didn't. We should always. Hmm. I think I skipped putting this in my notes and put it on my slides. So forgive me for that. Is that in your pages? It is. Oh, that means I need to tell you who it is. Hold on. Um, uh, they point out the justification. Oh, it's it's uh, it's Cranfield says that. Let me get there. Um, how much time do we got? We got time. Okay. Paul is arguing. I want to point out that Paul is arguing in the context of the inclusion of Gentiles into God's people, the church, all right? But according to the new perspective, that's what Paul's push is. Um, they point out that justification is not found or emphasized in all of, This is a big point here. Justification is not found in or emphasized in all of Paul's letters. It's only dealt with in letters where the relationship of the Gentile and the Jewish Christians are dealt with. That's a big thing to point out. Justification is not found in all of his letters, just those that are dealing with the relationship between the Gentile and Jew. That's huge, and that's a huge reason why this MPP has validity. Paul specifically ties justification to the ethnic question when he notes that no one is justified by works of the Torah Otherwise, God would be the God of the Jews only in Romans chapter 3. All this means that Paul's disagreement over Torah with his fellow Jewish Christians was not about Jewish legalism, uh, attempting to earn salvation, but instead of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's covenant people. Now, in 2015, uh, a modern scholar by the name of, uh, of John Barclay published a book called Paul and the Gift. And he shows that the disagreement between more reformed interpreters of Paul and those in the new, new perspective boils down to the definition of grace in Paul's lifetime. Barclay 
notes that grace is a free gift. Uh, the idea that grace is a free gift with no strings attached is much more of modern invention. In his writing in Paul and the Gift, uh, he, he states that it did not exist in the first century in the pagan world and Jewish writings or in Paul's theology, he argues. Grace and gifts always come with some reciprocity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. There's reciprocity attached to this. Grace comes first and works are expected. Um, now, Second Temple Judaism is diverse and there are numerous ways Jews talked about it. Uh, however, one um, perfection of grace they did not stress is, is the fact that it's circular or non-circular. God bestows grace without uh, the idea that God bestows grace without any expectation of any kind in return. That doesn't happen in Jewish texts, in Jewish thought, nor, he would argue, in Paul's thought. And so Barclay concludes that grace is everywhere in the Second, second Temple Judaism, but grace is not everywhere the same. Uh, which, again, that book is a fantastic book. That's a large book. It's like 550 pages, and it's pretty thick. There is a shorter version of it, an abridged version that he put out uh, in 2020 uh, that is fantastic. It is Paul. It's called Paul and, Paul and Grace, I think or Paul's relationship to grace. It came out in 2020, and it's much more concise, but very good uh, book. Uh, he demonstrates the notion, let's see, I, I read that. Uh, in addition to the new perspective of Paul, Cranfield notes that the Greek of Paul's day had no word or word group for the English terms legalism or legalistic or legalist or anything like that. And that's who says this. We should always think, uh, we should always, we think, be ready to reckon with the possibility that Pauline statements, which at first sight seemed to disparage the law, were really directed not against the law itself, but against the misunderstanding and misuse of it for which we now have a convenient terminology. Okay, I don't want to rabble too much, so let me think here. The result of all of this argument or all this talk about the new perspective of Paul leads us painting a new picture of who Paul is and what makes Paul Paul. So, Paul was born and lived and died a Jew, according to this perspective even as a Christian, a Jewish Christian. In Philippians 3, 3 through 6, Paul contrasts his Jewish lineage uh, with those Jewish, Christ, Jew, Jewish Christian missionaries who have a different view of how Gentiles can become a part of God's people, and he does. And the apostle lists seven items that highlight his Jewishness, even in that day. The first four are items over which he has no control. He lists... Uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was uh, from the people of Israel. He's not a proselyte. He's not a convert to Judaism. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. As we talked about last week, um, he very well, uh, 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 as a Jew, he very well knew Hebrew, uh, learned Aramaic and Hebrew, even though it was not spoken in the day. 
the last three of this list of seven he chose. According to the interpretation of Torah, he was a Pharisee. He was of the sect of the Pharisees. He was a persecutor of the church because of his zeal for the Lord. And as far as the Torah goes, he was blameless as far as his righteousness. And so as a palm, Jew was convinced that there was one God, the Creator who belonged, uh, to, to whom all, belonged all glory and honor. He believed that humanity had rejected God, choosing its own course, and as a result, there was nothing short of a cosmic disaster. The invasion of, the invasion of sin and death and demonic forces led by Satan into God's good world. And so Paul was convinced that the time in which he lived was the present evil age, as he would describe it. Paul believed that this one God chose Abraham and his offspring to be his people, who, who were to begin God's cosmic rescue operation. And the ultimate expression of that is the Messiah and, and God, or the Christ's kingdom. When Paul experienced the risen Jesus, he came to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the King of Israel, who would usher in the consummation of God's kingdom on earth. He knew that the first coming of the Messiah started God's kingdom, inaugurated God's kingdom, and that the kingdom would fully come at Jesus' second coming, at which time there would be a resurrection, a judgment, and then a recreation of the earth. And so, through the Christ, through the Christ event, the new age had invaded the, the present evil one. And the church was the group of people on whom the end of the ages had come. Paul's role to play in this divine drama was to extend God's gracious election to Gentiles and to bring them under the lordship of God and his Messiah Jesus before his kingdom was fully consummated at Jesus' second coming. And so Paul did not set out to found a new religion, Christianity. Instead, he considered himself a part of the restoration of Israel and the world through God and his royal Messiah, the Lord Jesus. 6.30 to 8. We have 10 minutes left. We didn't even start the new page, did we? Did we start the new page? Yeah, you're going to Okay. All right. Apostle among the Gentiles. Let's, let's run through this real quick. I'm so sorry. Am I boring you to death? Just lie to me and say, no, it's great. Yeah. Apostle to the Gentiles. As we have seen, Paul's encounter with the resurrection of Jesus led him to deep conviction that he had been called by God to be an apostle to the nations. Having experienced the appearance of the Lord and having been commissioned, he, no less than Peter and those who had been with the earthly Jesus, was now an authoritative messenger of God. Uh, the basic meaning of apostle, in the Greek it's apostolos, it's one sent with a message and the authority of the sender. Uh, and in the sender's theme. Um, an agent, an ambassador. Paul believed himself to be sent because he himself had been apprehended, he says. I love that. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says that, the, that Jesus apprehended him. He had been apprehended by, by the Messiah and thus caught up in this divine mission. 
a mission not everyone appreciated, to put it mildly. Uh, this mission was to spread a, a gracious, powerful word of good news that would establish an international empire world network of transformed multicultural communities obeying, glorifying, and public and bearing public witness to the one true God of Israel by conformity to God's Son and the power of the Spirit. Yeah, here's uh, um, not that I already obtained this or my, I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. The, the word there is acquired me, uh, which I think is just really cool. Uh, apprehended by. So what is the nature, the nature of apostleship? Do we have time to get through this? I don't think we do. I think we're going to call it quits there and start next week at the nature of apostleship. Um, I hope you all enjoy this. And if not, I hope you get a good nap. <laughs> I really enjoy this. I, 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 Sammy would tell you, uh, I, since we've started doing this, I'm sitting and reading and writing and reading and writing and He's like, dude, you're driving yourself nuts trying to get everything crammed in here. And maybe so, and maybe I'm driving you nuts. But I enjoy this type of thing, just researching and thinking. And So I hope you enjoy it as well. Um, we'll meet again next week, and we'll pick up there. Uh, and then dive into, I think, Romans. So this is going to be fun. Especially if you take this new picture of first century Judaism and their concept of grace, and then you start applying that to Paul's writings in Romans. Man, it changes everything, because we just kind of, by default, assume that he's, that he's barking against Jewish, um, trying to achieve salvation by works through Torah. Well, what if that's not the case? I mean, it's so much fun. So, I hope uh, we will enjoy that together. And if you don't enjoy this, just don't tell me about it. Just quit coming. All right? It'll, that'll be better. Um, let's pray. Uh, God, we come to you now. We thank you so much for your word. Uh, I, I get so excited thinking about uh, your, your guy, Paul, here. And, um, you know, because of the, the gap in time and culture, sometimes we come to your word with, with assumptions. And so... Uh, Lord, I thank you for the, for the resources that we do have that help us understand uh, the first century Paul in, in a new way. And our goal is that it's not just to understand Paul in a new way, but to understand your word in, in the way that you would have us understand it. We thank you for your faithfulness. We have great confidence as, that as we study together, um, you will bring to us exactly what you would have for us. I thank you for this group of people that gather, and I thank you for their, um, their patience with me and, and their seeming uh, excitement and enthusiasm about studying your word together. And God, that's really what we need in our, in our world today is, is your people to, to become excited about you and your word. Because... Unfortunately, we know that there are so many in our communities, in our worlds, that need to hear your gospel, that need to, 
to, to understand the grace offered through your Christ. So unfortunately, there are many people who need to hear it. Fortunately for us, uh, the opportunity for us to do that is huge. And so Lord, help us to do that. Help us to engage with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and share with them this wonderful gospel of a God who loves so much that you sent your son so that we could be restored with you. Lord, help us to leave here tonight with that on our lips. Lord, help us to live lives that are contagious so that those who do not know you will look at us and glorify you in heaven. We thank you for Christ and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you all so much. Come back next week.